I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner from Kansas City, and I am joined once again by my friend Chuck, founder of Strong Towns. How's it going, Chuck? Hey, it's going great. It's uh, May in Minnesota and it's starting to get beautiful. What's that like? Is that you know, it's at like 50 <laughs> degrees, 60. So I'm back. At, you can see me. Here's my sandals. Nice. <laughs> like I'm not taking off. It's 50 degrees out right now. I'm not taking off sandals until October. So I just refuse. Yeah, it's 50 degrees. It's really nice. We're very happy. We actually, it was like in the mid 60s yesterday and we ate dinner outside, which is like, this is gorgeous. That so. sounds very, very nice. Yeah. yeah it's you it was, against nature with your sandals. Yeah. Best of was, luck. Yeah, well, I will. Uh, it's it's you know if you're determined. Um, yesterday was my my dad's seventieth birthday, and we had him over, and I made him steaks and and shrimp on the grill, and we sat outside, and it was one of the most beautiful days I've had in a long time. So it's very nice. That sounds very nice. Yeah. Well, today we have a story about your favorite place in the whole world, or at least adjacent to it. <laughs> It was published in Orlando Weekly by Ken Story. It is entitled, Orlando is a car-reliant hellscape. Tanya Wilder hopes to fix it. So Wilder is a lifelong Orlando resident who has recently become the city's new director of transportation. Serving in this new role, she plans to work to make Orlando less car-centric by directing investment for multimodal infrastructure and promoting walkable development patterns. The impetus for shifting policy in Orlando has been largely induced by growing demand. Central Florida is not only a major tourism industry, but it also is one of the fastest growing regions in in the United States. According to Wilder, this means thinking more regionally about transportation while taking more targeted approaches to managing investments, including outside of the city limits. One example that they talked about was that uh, there was a case where Orlando actually fronted costs to make pedestrian improvements in another jurisdiction, which is pretty interesting. She makes this case for why regional coordination for transportation networks makes sense, saying that the majority of people don't know whether they are on a state or a county or a city road or what jurisdiction is even responsible for which infrastructure improvements. I know that we can't talk about Orlando without talking about Disney World, but I first want to start about talking about regionalism and the merits of managing transportation infrastructure at a broader scale and even, you know, funding and taxation at a broader scale and how that might work together. This is something that's been racking my brain for a little while now because I've recognized that the unproductivity of our development patterns is largely driven by mismatch priorities within many different jurisdictions, a lot of the times competing jurisdictions. The way we've arranged management responsibilities has distorted incentives to the extent that we've built cities that uh, we not only can't afford, but cities that people can't afford to live in because they've become so car dependent. 
So I've sometimes wondered why an entity like an NPO or something that's more um, a metro scale wouldn't be responsible for managing both infrastructure growth uh, as well as existing infrastructure and then also the taxation, so revenue. Why wouldn't something at that scale be managing both revenue and expenditures so that the so that the priorities were not didn't have that mismatch? Um, I want to get your thoughts on how you view management of infrastructure, specifically transportation infrastructure at that scale, and um, whether you think that's that's the right direction or if the decentralized kind of nature of our investments is a better approach for for mid-sized cities like this. Yeah, I think you're touching on something really important. And that is almost can be simplified down to who should be responsible for what, right? Yeah. You know, here in central Minnesota, I'll give you an example that I think relates to this that is really messed up. If you are in a township uh, outside of a city, you have the right sometimes to approve certain uh, developments. And for the township, it's like, yeah, let's let's bring in these new 20 houses and let's put in this new commercial development. But the county is responsible for the maintenance of the road. Sometimes it's flipped. The county can approve the development, but the townships are responsible for the maintenance of the road. Well, how does this make any sense? I mean, I'm creating something that then becomes your liability it creates this kind of mismatch in, you know, in upside and downside and in the decision-making process. The fact that it's not a source of tension is just reflective of the fact that we don't look at this correctly, right? Like we don't think about, we don't think about development or about building houses or building subdivisions as something that has a liability. We only look at it as something that has a gain. And so who cares, you know, like, let's just go build more stuff. I think you see that writ large in Central Florida. I mean, Central Florida is the the, the headline said hellscape. <laughs> I, I, I think it is like the two extremes kind of mashed together. Orlando, the city of Orlando itself has some of the greatest development patterns, and Florida actually has some of the best designed urban spaces in North America. It, it really does. And we don't even have to go to theme parks and, and other things to see that. I mean, there are places where real people live in real cities in the Orlando area that are gorgeously designed, that are just beautiful. But the vast, vast majority of Florida is this kind of auto-oriented hellscape. And when you get to this jurisdiction question you asked, I feel like what you find is that the state's interest, the state DOT, their interest is or should be in moving vehicles over great distances at speed, like moving goods and people over great distances at speed. And when they do that, they do a really good job of it. When they start to get into the Strode arena, where they're putting in traffic signals and lights and interchanges and big box stores, everything gets screwed up on like a massive scale. They're spending all kinds of money to build these horrible environments that no one can get around in that cost a ton and produce very little. Let's go to the city. When the city is focused on building great streets and great neighborhoods and great places, it becomes this, and to quote the the, the planner in the article, you know, it's this multimodal, uh, people-oriented, there's all the jargon that is there, but they're basically building like good places for people to be, 
the cities can do that really well and with minimal budgets and lots of return, great investments, wonderful places people want to be. When they get into the let's build transportation to induce growth kind of game, you get back into this hellscape thing where now we're just building strip malls and like miles and miles of nasty strode. Here's what I'm going to say. I feel like the regional governments are like the strode of governments. I mean, they like <laughs> they it, when it comes to development, I, I think the theory in the 1950s and 1960s was we want to increase mobility everywhere. So let's give counties uh, county governments funding. Let's give county governments authority to basically build out this regional infrastructure to kind of augment and connect from the city neighborhood infrastructure and the statewide infrastructure. What the county winds up doing then is primarily building the worst transportation components in the system. The ones where you're driving 45 miles an hour for mile after mile after mile after mile, not getting anywhere real quickly, not having a whole lot of development, really, really expensive stuff that doesn't get you anywhere quickly. And I think that if we took the county governments, like the regional governments out of the transportation game and just say, it's just going to be state and it's just going to be local. Yeah, there would be some things that got missed and there would be some nuance there. But for the most part, we would have a vastly improved transportation system. That's very interesting. Well, it's very telling to that Orlando is this place that has both both the best and the worst examples of urbanism. I, As you know, I was over in Orlando back in March uh, visiting a friend and I stayed up in like the Lake Formosa area and definitely felt like at the micro level in this little village area, there was some really great urbanism and walkability up until you hit a main street and it all falls apart and it's like a totally different place. It, it's almost like people can live locally within their little village if their job is nearby or if they're a work a remote worker or something like that. But for people who are commuting long distances in Orlando, the reality is that a lot of major employers are not in the downtown area and they're sprawled out around the region. And so it makes it very difficult for people to live more locally in this region, or at least most people, it seems. You know, the idea of what they call uh, seamless connectivity and achieving that in the Orlando area definitely means that there needs to be some scaling up in terms of like transit or bike networks and things like that. Um, which gets daunting because when you look at the bones of Orlando, it's it's so car oriented outside of these little walkable oasis. It's almost like it's it's almost like you have um, you have a city of islands, and those islands are walkable neighborhoods that are surrounded by moats of like the worst car infrastructure that you can imagine um, that don't really enable you to get. Um, outside those areas safely um, using any mode of transportation other than a vehicle. So if we look at like the history of Florida, first of all, I think it's important to say being from Minnesota, 
Florida is this magical place of warmth and sunshine. <laughs> and I think every Minnesotan is like inclined to think of Florida as this, you know, beautiful, beautiful place that we just want to be every January, February, and March. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was looking at real estate in Florida when it when it was like negative 10 degrees back in February. And I was like, why do I live in the Midwest? How, why do yeah. I live in a place that gets cold? Yeah. And you're like, oh my gosh, 70 degrees right now would be so nice. So yeah. I, I, I get it. I think it's important to understand that in the 1950s, the development of Florida was all along the coast. I mean, it was just along the Gulf Coast. It was along the Atlantic Coast. And that was really the only tolerable place to live in Florida. If you were in the middle of Florida, you were in a hot swamp with really no air conditioning. I mean, the air conditioning technology at that point was not to where it is today. And so people did not live there. I mean, I won't say nobody lived there, but the, this was not a, a highly populated place. The reason Walt Disney was able to buy Disney World, which is basically like they bought an entire county. I mean, they just bought this vast amount of land. The reason they were able to do that is because nobody lived there. or It was very sparsely populated. Very, It's a swamp in the middle of a muggy, humid, wretched state, you know, it, it, with no air conditioning. It's a tough place to live. Now, everything that has been built subsequent in not just in you know Orlando but that whole like center of Florida region has all been built in the 60s and on it was the full scale suburban experiment type development pattern and so what you have is you have in its like most authentic form this cookie cutter replicating pattern over and over and over again and you can see the iterations it's fascinating because You'll see the old high. If you go through the maps, there's an old highway that will run, and you drive down that old highway, and it's a, there's a traffic signal every mile. It, it's there are abandoned buildings along it. The old hotel that's you know the swimming pool is filled in and it's falling in, and it's a mess. And this these places are just gross. And then you'll go over like a mile, and there will be a highway. And it's like a strodish highway. It's like two lanes with a divide in the middle and and you know some semblance of sidewalks. And you'll have the repeating Taco Bell, strip mall, big box store, Taco Bell, strip mall, big box store, just like over and over and over again with the residential subdivisions off of it. And that's like the 1990s version of the highway. Like we, we, built a, we built a highway, we screwed it up. So we built another highway adjacent to it to move cars. And in a lot of the state now, you have that highway abandoned, and then you have a mile over the next version of the highway. And that will be more like what you and I would think of in the Midwest as like an interstate. Almost all the interstates in Florida have like these parallel highway systems that run to them, which is basically like version one screwed up, version two screwed up. Now we're going to try again in version three. And the amazing thing is that they will go along there and build interchanges and basically screw those up as well as they go. It, it is a remarkable thing to watch happen because you're basically watching them you know, replicate the same failure over and over and over again on a bigger and bigger scale. And it's, it's almost confusing and disorienting how it's like the fool like hitting themselves over and over with a bigger, bigger hammer in the foot. 
And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's frustrating and it's very sad. Interspersed with that are these places that often existed before the, uh, the, the 1950s, but sometimes have just been carved out of this madness to build these just beautiful places that you won't find anywhere else in, in North America. You won't find them in Minnesota, that's for sure. Yeah, that's fascinating. You touched on something that I did want to talk to you about because I am not very familiar with the history of Florida and why it is the way it is. I, you know, I think of it as a place that I grew up going to once a year to go to the beaches and, you know, never really thought about it as as a place that, you know, all these people are living and it's increasingly becoming less of an only tourist destination, but really like a place that people are moving to. And what's interesting to me is that we often think about the United States settlement in terms of east to west coast, and you can clearly see the evolution of how we build cities play out when you go from the East Coast to the West Coast. You know, you have New York City, those types of cities that are very walkable, built before the car. And then you have this disruptive technology that becomes the driving force for how we build cities. And that you see that played out in places like Phoenix and LA, where they're very much built to accommodate moving vehicles around. What I think we don't talk about very often is why there is this distinction between the North and the South in the United States. And it's not something I really had thought about before reading this article and thinking about Florida a little bit more than I normally do. And it, it's like, you know, from East to West, the Southern cities are much more car oriented than the cities in the North from the East to the West. You think of Western cities like Portland, Oregon, that although they, they are in the West, they're known for being like walkable neighborhoods. And so, so it kind of conflicts with that East-West thesis. And there really is more of a North-South uh, distinction. Places like Dallas to Atlanta to Phoenix, uh, Florida, it's, it's all very car-centric. And it seems that the, it's also driven by technology, which is air conditioning. And when they were actually able to support the, the level of growth that they have now um, didn't happen until, I guess, the, the later 1900s, which is really fascinating to me. Yeah, there is a north-south dynamic. I mean, you you can go to, I, I mean, you can say Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, Austin, all, all southern cities, and all have like core downtowns that existed before the air conditioning kind of revolution took place. And they have some very nice places and some historic structures. But even cities like Birmingham and Montgomery and Mobile, I like these places. I mean, they have some great urban fabric in the core that was all built prior to this that has, you know, the old kind of Steve Mozan original green thinking where, you know, the way the building is laid out, the way the windows are placed, the the architecture is designed to be as cool as possible in the summer months, you know, while allowing like air circulation and everything else. Some of these places are really geniusly built. They're, they're, they're amazing. In the 1950s and and really, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the easiest place to build the suburban version of America uh, was in the North, 
and was on the, the West Coast. Not necessarily the East Coast because you had established cities and you had established ecosystems. But like here in the Midwest, Jim Kunstler, we talked about last week, you know, once he told me, yeah, I've been to Brainerd. He goes, you guys just committed suicide. And that's what we did because we didn't have the, the structures that we had didn't have the permanence that you would have had on the East Coast. So what you see is that here we started to tear things down to build this stuff. But out on the West Coast, you didn't need air conditioning. To, I mean, you can live in San Diego without air conditioning. San Diego is a beautiful city. You can live in, in lots of LA and San Bernardino and, and even you know San Francisco and Sacramento without air conditioning. You look at those places and you could build the suburban stuff much earlier than you could in Texas, much earlier than you could in the center of Florida, much earlier than you could in the suburbs of Atlanta. Because those places not only needed the technology and the kind of the ecosystem of home building and financing and all that, but they needed, you know, this kind of year round lifestyle to be something that was vetted and viable and, and scalable. And it, it, if you look at it in that way, what you see, and I, I've said this in Texas many times, because in Texas, they like to say we're not California in California. They like to draw distinctions between them and Texas <laughs> in many ways. The Texas development pattern is just the California development pattern delayed by 20 years. The, the period of time it took for air conditioning to get into every car and every home and every new thing that was built. And so that 20-year delay, to me, explains a lot of the difference between the finances of California and the finances of Texas. California went through their boom period. Texas went through their boom period. They both have the same development pattern, the same lag, the same you know, kind of things that are coming to affect them. And, and I think you can point to Central Florida and see the same exact kind of thing. Here in Minnesota, we, we, you know, we didn't need air conditioning up here. Like I use our air conditioning like five days a year. You need heat, but we had heat, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it seems like basically all of the Southern United States is having this boom period right now, which is really interesting. And you know, I told you we'd get to talk about Disney World, so I'll, <laughs> I'll just make the comment that I think it's interesting that Disney World is just adjacent to Orlando or within Orlando, however those jurisdictions work out. And it's a place that is like the, you know, gold standard of urbanism and urban design. And it's right there and people pay tons of money to go spend time there, yet it doesn't seem like any of that is really reflected in how Orlando has decided to build itself, um, which which is interesting to me. Yeah, it's funny because if you read like the history of Walt Disney himself, Disneyland in in California, uh, a lot of the inspiration was that was a pushback against suburban sprawl. I mean, he's a, this is hideously ugly. It's bad for families. It's bad for people. It, it creates these landscapes devoid of community. Uh, and, and so a, a lot of his optimism in building Disneyland was that I will kind of remind people what a great place looks like. You said uh, the gold standard of urbanism. And I think maybe the better way to say that is the gold standard of like urban design, because these places are really like it's like you're in a theater, you're in a movie yeah, scene. Yeah, exactly. Right? 
Like no one lives there. It's just, it's a, it's a, but it's, <laughs> I'm in sure terms you could of, if they were offering yeah, places to if live. They let me. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of like building habitat for humans that, you know, validates and promotes and, 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 and just fits your scale as a human being, it is the gold standard. I mean, that's exactly what they've been designed to do. Unfortunately, no one was really inspired by Disney to build great places. I mean, not nobody, but, uh, Cities certainly weren't. They just said, this is great capitalism. This is a great commercial venue. Let's build around it. <laughs> and so you may not know this, but the Florida Project, which is what Disney World you know, was originally thought of as the Florida Project, the thing that they wanted to do in Florida was buy enough land around their theme parks so that the developers couldn't degrade it with the crappy development. In Disney, when they built Disneyland, they didn't have much money. So they basically bought like an orange grove and built Disneyland. And then right away, all of these, you know, junky developers built crap around them. And so they said, this is ruining the experience of people coming to our theme park. We want to own all the land around it so that we can control that experience. And that's basically why they located in Florida where they did. Wow, that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's interesting too that it's like cities are making all of this tax revenue off of it and then building, you know, horrible suburban sprawl and and at least the the networks and the framework to for that kind of development. We often don't think that uh, about the fact that infrastructure is the public's biggest investment. It's a huge investment that we make and it's very difficult to actually change the bones of a city once it's been established. So it's incredibly important that we get it right. And if we don't get it right, um, there are ways to kind of reform how streets are designed and to make kind of those micro fixes, which it seems like that's what a lot of cities are doing at this point is just trying to make it a little bit better. But it, it's such an important investment when you lay out streets and when you are actually expanding a city, it's, it's hard to change that. And Orlando, it sounds like it's going to have to be very strategic about how they make improvements and start to reform how streets are designed. Like any city that's, that's been building like this. I, I think it's, it's not just central Florida or even the South. It's, basically every city in the United States has really integrated their their street networks and designed places that don't promote walkable development. And the streets are really what supports the type of development that we all say we want. And it has to start with the streets. You, You look at Kansas City, though, and Kansas City has some core neighborhoods that are established in this very kind of flexible framework, you know, this kind of gridded, organic kind of framework. And I can see a way that those adapt and, and change, right? Like that, like that's a frame, like your neighborhood is one that should and could evolve over time, right? Yeah. The core neighborhoods of the city, because it's a gridded network, um, it, the bones are there and some of the streets could be reinvested in and reformed to be better streets. So it's much easier to reform that than a, a neighborhood that wasn't that doesn't have those kinds of bones. It's not a grid. It's spread out. It's uh, it, that's a lot more difficult to make walkable or less car dependent. Yeah, you go out to the edge of of Kansas City and look at some of the developments that have gone in over the last twenty years. I don't have a lot of ideas for how to fix those. 
you know, certainly not ideas that scale, you know, that could be repeated over and over again and don't require like bizarre amounts of capital. I, I, your neighborhood is easily fixed and it's easily fixed within the budgets that we have. Those neighborhoods way out on the edge are not. And, and I think the challenge that Orlando has is that Orlando has uh, a disproportionate number of the stuff that you find out on the edge. I mean, they have, you, in Kansas City, you have like 30 years worth of it, really, of the worst stuff. In Orlando, they have 60 years of the worst stuff. And a lot of it is in like terminal decline, terminal decline. Yeah. And their goals are primarily to make it easier for people to have different options in terms of commuting, right? I mean, I, right. I think that right. suburban context, you can build trails, you can, but a lot of those things are used recreationally if we're talking realistically. There are people who will still commute by bike or commute by walking and live close to where they work. And I think those are kind of special circumstances that are a little bit outside of the norm for people who are living and, and, sprawling suburban context, it feels much less natural for somebody to get on their bike and, and bike 15 miles in that context if they don't feel safe to do that and if if the context is just not set up that way. So it it just takes a lot more investment to do something like that. And and even then, if it's easier to just drive, it it makes people more car reliant and it's kind of a self it's it's a reinforcing it is. Um, issue. Let me give you one last thing about some history in, in Central Florida that you might not know. So Epcot Center, have you ever been to Epcot Center? No. Um, okay. Epcot Center, the original concept that Walt Disney himself had was that Epcot Center was the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And Oh, yeah. His, I learned about yeah. this. Yes. Okay. Well, his idea was you know, we are going to have all these people who are working at the Magic Kingdom and working at Disney World and doing all this stuff. And we want to be like a repository for industry. We They basically wanted to be like the Silicon Valley of 1950s, 1960s industry, right? So we want to be like the place where innovation happens and ideas happen. So Epcot Center, Epcot itself, was going to be a city. It was going to be a city where people would live. They could take a monorail over to their job at Magic Kingdom, and they could come back and live at Epcot, and they would live this great life. They, of course, would not need a car because they. <laughs> why would you need a car in a place like this? You know, and whatever cars there were would be driven in like tunnels underneath it. So it was all supposed to be one, you know, above ground, no vehicles. And there's some weird things about it. If you actually want to see a schematic of it, if you ever go to the Magic Kingdom, there's a ride called uh, the People Mover. You get on this ride, the People Mover, and they will take you past the um, basically like the, the schematic, the the layout of what Epcot Center was originally supposed to look like. It's the a tower with like a big dome, air conditioned dome, and then. It's it's it, it was really kind of a nutty thing in our day, but you get what they were trying to do is not have everybody have to commute every day to work at, at Disney World. The idea was to live here in this really nice city, this really nice place, and be able to live and work and, and be part of this whole environment. It didn't work that way, right? And as you know, Walt Disney died in the mid-1960s, and Epcot Center wasn't opened until the early 1980s. And in that period of time, uh, 
not only did the Magic Kingdom open and a bunch of resorts and other things, but they Disney kind of embraced the commuter model. And so Epcot became this uh, this display of industry, but and, and then the carousel of nations and all this stuff, what it's known as today, but certainly not a place where people live. Like that went out the window. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's certainly an interesting history in, in Central Florida and the legacy of Walt Disney is just it's very it's very fascinating, and it would have been cool to see what Epcot would have become. Uh, but you know, things change over time, I suppose. I don't know if you know, but Walt Disney also has some history in Kansas City. He does. Well, north of Kansas City is where he's from. Um, what's the name of the town? Madeline or something like that, or I can't remember the name of it. But that was the city that he prototyped Main Street USA off of. Really? Yeah. I don't know what city that is. Okay, I'll, I'll find it. Hmm. I don't think I have the name exactly right, but it's some, uh, someone is yelling at their speaker right now because they know. <laughs> yeah, because they know the answer and they can't, they can't yeah, tell us. <sighs> I can't remember. Uh, I will get it. How about, how about this as a way to close out? Why don't we next year, because we don't want to do this till it's cold, but why don't we next year plan on traveling to Disney World, and we'll bring our podcast gear, and then you and I will do a couple of these from 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 someplace warm and festive, and that will be a great tax write off because we will be working, <laughs> and then we'll also, you know, be doing important stuff, right? Yeah, if you work for the IRS and you happen to listen to this, it's for work. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely well, we want to be in the ambiance of actually doing it, you know, at. Adam, yeah, so I think I think it's justified. We should do a podcast on a roller coaster. Um, I'm in. I'm totally in. I'm. Uh, I, I might want to go to California because I think that the Disneyland has better roller coasters than Disney World. But I could be in. Marceline uh, is the city. M a r c e l i n e. And I apologize if I'm not saying that right. If it's Marceline or Marceline. Yeah, it's hmm. uh, it's east of Kansas City, like northeast of Kansas City. I'm not totally familiar with all of the towns in this region. There are so many, but I've never heard of Marceline, Marceline. Marceline, yeah. Interesting. Maybe I've we should do a podcast to, from there. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a podcast from there. I've been wanting to um, – actually do like a train tour of Missouri towns because you can stop in the towns between Kansas City and St. Louis. And I've taken the train before, but I haven't stopped in any of the towns and they all look really cool. And so that's kind of on my list. I'm hoping to do that this summer. That sounds fun. Yeah. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. But before we conclude today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that's been taking up our time these days, anything we've been reading, watching, anything like that. So what is on your radar, Chuck? I, I have been, last weekend I was able to do some yard projects, which was kind of fun. And I started listening to this book called Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe by Nail Ferguson. And <laughs> I've, I've, I've written, I've, I've, Ferguson's written like 15 books or something like that. They're very good. He's he's a British, very thoughtful, deals a lot with economics and, and cultural change. This has not been like a doom and gloom book. It's really more asking the question about how humans deal with 
things that feel like they're the end of the world, climate change, mm-hmm. pandemics, what have you. And it's it's been very it's very fascinating. And he reads it, which I find kind of interesting because anytime someone British reads something, it just sounds smarter, right? Even though it's on double speed, I like it. So yeah, British people are automatically smarter because of the <laughs> accent. <laughs> you just jump assumed. like so you jump like 30 IQ points as soon as you speak in an English accent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're all like, that person sounds like they know what they're talking about. <laughs> yes. As an American, that is very true. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a horrible bias that we all have. The Minnesota, the Minnesota accent does not get you that. No. <laughs> no, neither does whatever my accent is. I don't know what yeah. Midwest, Missouri, uh-huh. I don't know. The Midwest. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a very cheerful book. You it's actually have been the really fascinating. Lineup. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, so I actually have been listening to some JRE um, podcast episodes. They're like three hours long. So it's been a while since I've actually caught up with any of them. And recently he had, he had somebody on named David Holthouse. And it was one of the best interviews I've heard in a really long time. This guy is what they call a gonzo journalist. I don't know if you know what that means. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, so it basically means that they write essays in the first person. But he goes undercover within various different countercultural movements in the U.S., um, many of them being criminal organizations. And he describes them as um, people who took a wrong turn at the Renaissance Festival, basically. And... <laughs> It's just like the most interesting interview I've listened to in so long, just because he, he's the he's an individual who basically infiltrates like cult-like groups and learns about them and writes stories about them. He's really well known for reporting on like extremist hate groups in the United States. Um, so he has a lot of pieces on that, but he also has essays on like outlaw mountain bikers in Sedona, Arizona and countercultural groups like the Burning Man people and the rave scene and even train hoppers. So I don't know what is it about me that I find this stuff so interesting, but it's just fascinating that there are people who just individually would go infiltrate these groups and live among them and try to blend in to get information it's just pretty cool. So I've been reading his essays over the past week and it's like fascinating because he opens a window to these worlds and you are able to learn about them and otherwise you wouldn't be able to learn about it unless somebody was crazy enough to go in there and pretend to be part of it. Tell me what the name of this podcast is again. So the guy's name is David Holthouse and he was on okay. uh, JRE, so Joe Rogan Experience. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You, you see, you said JRE, and I'm like, I'm not cool enough. <laughs> but when you say Joe Rogan, I'm like, okay, I know Joe Rogan's podcast. So, okay. Yeah, everybody knows Joe Rogan's podcast. At this point, yeah. yes. I, ours is probably second most famous to his. Um, I think we're a little down in the ratings than him, but we're gaining, <laughs> we're gaining fast. We're he, gaining is mo- he is not moving, and we are moving. So. <laughs> If that means anything. <laughs> yeah, he is well, stuck. He is stuck where he is at number yeah. one. And we are we are moving up towards him. Yeah. We're getting I'm sure closer feels, every day. I'm sure he feels it too. I'm Slightly sure he feels that yes. we are yeah. I think we're that's why he him. hasn't called to have us on his podcast yet. <laughs> 
yeah. I, I'm sure they listen to this, so maybe they'll have you on soon. Yeah, the upzoned revolution. It's all good. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I, you should know the stats on this podcast are awesome. Like oh, we that's are, great. are we have we have thousands of listeners and it's really cool. This is a very popular podcast. So thank you to everybody who's listening. Cause Yeah, thank you to everyone who is listening. Sometimes I forget that people are listening because <laughs> it's almost like we're on a Zoom call and then I get compliments every once in a while and it's really nice. So thank you to everybody who is listening. We we record these on Friday afternoon and it's kind of like the highlight end of my week. Cause when I'm done yeah. with this, like I'm done and I get to chat with Abby for a while and then I go home and I'm like, yep, I had a great week. And even if I had a bad week, it's like it ended well because I got to chat with you, Abby. So Oh, that's great. Well, that makes me so happy. Well, we will end on that note then. Um, so thanks, Chuck. Thanks for joining Thank you. me today. Nice and thank you, you everyone for listening to another episode of Upsound. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. Bye-bye. <laughs>